This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company who I've used for well over a decade now and who are reaching out to you guys, the audience, to offer you 15% not only off one purchase, but an ongoing 15% that will only ever be trumped if something is even for sale for a higher discount than that 15%. I'm going to give you that discount code in just a moment, but I want to talk about another product and showcase that, and that is the AMP, which is the All Missions Pack. So what they've done with this, they've taken an extremely comfortable backpack, you know, hiking quality with some incredible webbing and straps to really even out that load, but they've added what they call the gear set. I think this is extremely pertinent for us because we are jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and we're not just a firefighter, a police officer. You're a father, you're an athlete, you're a hiker, you're a gun owner, whatever it is that you use. And so each of these sets can be added to the pack or taken off. So for me personally, I have the shove-it kit, which allows me to put in brush gear and actually slide my helmet in there if I deploy on a brush fire. Uh, there is a med pouch, which I think doubles very well for a wash bag. Again, I snap it on if I go to the station, and then I can remove it for the next two days when I don't need it. So it allows you to have one backpack that's extremely versatile. There's also an element where if you do have weapons, you're going to the range, you can have a short barrel rifle in there. There's a concealed carry pocket. So extremely versatile all around one specific backpack. So the discount code for this and anything else on their site is SHIELD15. S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And as I said, that will get you a discount over and over again if you go to www.511tactical.com. 
Welcome to episode 325 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show Marine Executive Protection Specialist and author Byron Rogers. So we discussed a host of topics from near-death experiences to crew cohesion, transitioning out of the military, prejudice, and so many other topics. So you're really, really going to love this conversation He talks about the upcoming conference. I urge you to look at the incredible list of speakers that he has at this next event. It is an incredible resource when it comes to becoming a sheepdog, a protector, not only in your home, but in your community as well. So before we get to that interview, as I always say, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show leave feedback and leave a rating. The five-star ratings really do make us more visible for people looking for a project like this. And then as I mentioned over and over again, this is a free library for you, the audience. So all I ask is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories. There are people all over planet Earth that are having problems and these episodes have the solutions. So please share. So with that being said, I introduce to you Byron Rogers. Enjoy. Byron, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. Hey, it's an honor to be here. I'm, I'm excited for this. Thanks for having me, James. And I just want to shout out to Matt, who yet again has connected me with an amazing person. So thank you to him. Where, where did you guys meet? You know, uh, Matt, one of my buddies, it's just one of those things, you know, it's fortuitous, right? One of my buddies was getting some beef and he was all excited about how good quality and organic and like, american it was you know he's like hey you know there's a there's a guy he has a farm we're gonna do this i'm gonna get some beef you want to hop in with me so i was like okay cool yeah let's get some like actual real organic meat and um that's how we met man (laughs) and he came to drop the meat off and and i was like hey so we talked a little bit and then uh you know then he said he, he he uh looked me up online looked us up online and the other two guys i work with so you couldn't find anything but i'm like you know, I'm all over social media. <laughs> so then, then you know, we reconnected and here I am. Brilliant. Where are we finding you on planet Earth today? I am hanging out here in good old Orange County, California, man. Yeah, this is uh, this is this has been home for a little bit now. Excellent. If you don't mind me asking which city, because I used to work out there. Yeah, I'm in Orange. Orange. In Orange. Okay. Yeah. I was an Anaheim firefighter for a few years. Heck yeah. That's awesome. Right next to you. Okay, so then I want to start at the very beginning. Um, where were you born? And then what was your family dynamic like? What did your parents do and how many brothers and sisters? So this, I'm get, I feel like I'm getting psychoanalyzed. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about your mother. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, I, um, I was born in the Bahamas, in Nassau, Bahamas. Uh, I grew up there until I was about five. And then my parents split. And my mom went back to Washington State and I bounced back and forth. So during the summers, I'd be with my father in the Bahamas and, and, and during the winters and school year, I was with my mom in the US. Um, so I, uh, you know, I can swim and I can, I'm kind of a different type of, kind of hybrid, different type of black guy. <laughs> you know? um, as I, you know, especially when I got in the military, that's when I really noticed it, you know, cause we'd go to the swim tank and 
the other black guys couldn't swim. God bless them. <laughs> um, so there was some truth to that. But anyways, I have uh, five sisters, um, four of which are on my father's side. One is on my mother's side. Um, no brothers, so I'm pretty used to being the only only in a lot of situations. Um, and yeah, that was pretty much my childhood. Yeah, you know what's funny we say about the, the swimming thing? I had a, a guy, Tom Hewitt, who is a British surfer who settled in South Africa and started a foundation called Surfers Not Street Children. And they take, you know, poor, but I think pretty much all um, black South African children, a lot of which are orphaned from HIV and these, you know, these horrendous things that they have over there. And they teach them to surf. But what I didn't realize, he said one of the biggest challenges first was teaching them to swim because there's a lot of um, myths that were brought to some of the black communities, probably by, you know, my ancestors, telling them that, you know, the sharks were going to eat them. So even these kids that lived on the coast weren't able to swim. So it was interesting, the kind of history behind some of that. Wow. that Maybe that's what it is because... My experience is like African-Americans are like not trying to get in the water, right? And growing up in the Bahamas, we lived in the water. Like you weren't even cool if you couldn't dance or swim growing up. Like you'd never have a girlfriend on the island, you know? So, <laughs> yeah, man, it was, uh, it was interesting. Well, you got anatomy as well because I have very dense bones. I've never, never broken a bone and I'm very lean as well. And I don't mean that like I'm muscular. I'm just not fat. <laughs> Um, but I sink like a stone in the water and, and in lifeguard training years ago, people would dread dragging me as the dummy because it literally was, you know, like sideways while they were dragging me. But anatomically, African American men and women have, you know, greater muscle mass and, and more dense bones. So there is actually that physiological element to it as well. Man, I experienced that <laughs> when I was in the Marine Corps, they're talking about, yo, we're about to go in the, into the tank and, um, you know, they're explaining, yeah, there's three different types of buoyancy levels, you know, positive. Uh, and there's, uh, you know, basically like zero buoyancy and then there's negative. They're giving you these techniques for positive and zero and then they get to negative and they're like, anyways. <laughs> Just get it. And, you know, we're sitting there treading water and I and I can do it in the ocean. No, no problem at all. But yeah, man, like treading when we had to tread water in formation and do stuff like that, I had to work and I can I can actually lay on my back and cross my arms and just lay down on the bottom of most swimming pools. When I was doing my scuba training, I just could the the instructor didn't trust me, <laughs> didn't believe me. But yeah, I can just I can just lay down on the bottom of the pool. Yeah, I, I the same. And they're giving out the weights for the you know the weight belts when the when they're trying to to find that buoyancy. I'm like I literally need one. <laughs> That's it. Actually, give me a styrofoam cup. That'll work. <laughs> <laughs> so well. Um, Back to that then, um, with Nassau, total bizarre tangent, but I've been in Nassau multiple times, but as with most Americans, it was on a giant cruise ship that came in, you know, didn't see the country at all and then left again. You being a resident, to everyone listening that visits Nassau, where are some of the places that they should go off the beaten track to see the real Nassau? Mm-hmm. Um, that's interesting. I mean, the real Nassau... If you go down to like um, South Mackey Street, like I, I, I honestly, 
would say in many cases, man, the straw market is really, really kind of the hub of the culture and stuff like that in terms of what you want to see while you're there. You know, it's like that's where all the history, all the art is. That's where all the, the kind of cultural hotspot was and really, you know, unless you know someone, I mean, this NASA is amazing. Like, you know, like zooming around on all the little islands in that area is awesome. I've never seen water like that. I've been to over 60 countries all around the world. Um, but it kind of gets like almost all the same <laughs> after you get away from like Bay Street and uh, the straw market. That's, I think, really where where the action is in terms of the beauty of it. Um, there's a really cool excursion you can go on, which is a powerboat adventure that takes you out to some of the outer islands um and and or exuma exuma is amazing and it's like having a very intimate experience with just the nature there so you pull up on the beach and there's all these um all these uh oh what kind of lizards the little the iguanas the iguanas are running around you can feed them right there uh on the shore the birds literally will eat out of your hand that you <laughs> you hold your hand out and the birds will eat out of your hand there's like a wild boar that runs around on one, uh, one of the islands that you'll meet maybe um and you go through this whole day you feed sharks feed stingrays um there's stuff like that uh the one that i'm talking about is called powerboat adventure it takes you one to the outer islands yeah that stuff or like camping in exuma um is another thing that i absolutely love to do and i just want to be in nature in the bahamas Excellent. Well, thank you for that because we we've been there several times and and always end up at that one that one beach kind of across from where everything's moored, um, and you know the straw market is beautiful. I, I mean, I agree a hundred percent. But I feel like there's there's other you know immersion events that we could do rather than keep doing the same thing over and over again. Hundred percent. And if you want uh, really authentic good Bahamian food, right underneath the bridge there, you know, like you'll pull up to the straw market. And if you are facing the straw market and you look to the left and you see the bridge, it takes you over to Paradise Island. Right under the bridge, man, that's where they have the real stuff. There's like a whole kind of another market under there where you can just get everything. Kong salad, Kong fritters, um, you know, Bahama Mamas, just everything's there. And uh, it's real and it's awesome. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, we can just end the podcast here. That was some great travel advice. <laughs> All right, well then back to to your upbringing then. So you were you were sharing time between the islands and and uh, the U.S. Um, when you were growing up, you mentioned about swimming. Uh, what were other sports that you played? Were you an athlete at the school age? Yeah, I um really. I mean, I grew up playing some base, some tried to play some baseball and t-ball, but like, yeah, I love the athletic aspect of it, but I wasn't ever really amazing at it. I didn't really really dig into a sport until I got to football. Um, that was, that was my, that was my, that was my thing. Cause I think that I have like a kind of an organic warrior code to me, especially given the way my father is. Um, and I was able to really kind of let that blossom in football. Uh, and my father, you know, good guy, love him, but just to give you some understanding, he's, uh, you know, he got shot at point blank range with a shotgun in the uh back left on the back left side during a hunting accident um and you know he survived he was <laughs> you know he survived it and 
had to hold his guts in in the front while his buddy drug him through the jungle. And so he's just a really hard disciplinarian entrepreneur. Uh, was in a magazine as one of the top entrepreneurs in the Bahamas. So that's kind of the, you know, the mentality that I had, you know, going through life. Your dad does a lot for your identity in some cases. And so um, once I got to football, I was like, oh, I can implement this warrior ethos that I have inside me and started doing that. And then even up through high school, uh, played for a 6A school out in Gig Harbor, Washington, and uh, we had, you know, one of the best weightlifting programs in the state, fortunately. And um, it was just good to be a leader on that team. And, uh, you know, just like that's where I, my leadership skills really started to blossom as well. Really culminate. They started to blossom in high school, but in school. But, yeah, that's really where I started to, like, feel like how I'm good at this stuff. Your dad wasn't hunting with Dick Cheney, was he? <laughs> right? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> No, that's amazing though. But you said about a disciplinarian side from him, just to kind of kind of understand your background. Now he clearly overcame some physical and probably mental adversity as well. How did that translate into his parenting that that left that impression on you? Mm -hmm. Both of my parents actually, I mean, everyone very high discipline, disciplinarian environment for me growing up. Um, on my mom's side, same type of thing, you know. Uh, my grandma was a teacher for like 20 some years. So, you know, she'd have me sit down at the table and do my work and not leave until I was done. You know, I would get spanked and stuff, um, if I did wrong things. And what that did for me is, man, it just really taught me how to control myself. It taught me a high degree of emotional intelligence with regards to um, not letting my emotions have me, but having my emotions, you know, like, so I would get, I do something wrong. I get spanked by my mom. My mom would be like, okay, I'm doing this because I love you. And she was consistent, right? So uh, I think a lot of discipline has taken a bad rap because a lot of it has been uh, counterproductive. What I've learned in my life is that undisciplined discipline is counterproductive. Undisciplined discipline is, is, is damaging. Um, I think one of the reasons I'm so healthy is because I experienced discipline, disciplined discipline and consistent, um, considerate discipline. Uh, so I may have been upset about what was going to happen or, or whatever, but I understood a few things. My parents love me. They at least believe they're doing this because they love me. Uh, is they're not making an emotional decision, they're not going overboard, and this is what happens when you mess up. There are consequences. Um, so for me, it instilled a level of um, a level of trust with my parents uh, that they really do care about me. Uh, that I think a lot of kids didn't have, even if they had both parents and they had all the money in the world, which I grew up around that too. And it gave me way tougher skin than ninety percent of the kids I was around. Uh, because I knew what actual, like, <laughs> I knew how to suffer if I needed to. Um, and then it gave me a lot more control over myself to make sure I get things done because I had real consequences waiting for me if I didn't get them done. Then after I got spanked or whatever, my mom or dad would be like, hey, now give me a hug, which then taught me um, no matter how you feel, you still need to perform. And I find these principles to be some of the most important and also some some of the principles that make me go a lot farther in life than I, I see a lot of things other people struggle with. And I'm just like, man, I'm so fortunate I learned these things as a young man from my parents. 
but I was afraid of my dad. I was very afraid of my dad. <laughs> but I think it was a healthy fear, man. I think it was like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Like that's how my ha- my 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 house was. It was I loved and I feared him, but it kept me in line. You know, it was a very interesting thing. Well, it's an interesting observation that you said about having this discipline, but but understanding why. And I think that really carries over to a lot of things. I was I was you know beaten is a severe word but i was hit with with a multitude of inanimate objects through my childhood (laughs) let's put it that way um but you know i think that's something that now as a dad myself i realize now that the smacking i I smacked my son's um you know thighs when he was small when he when he did something naughty but what ended up being a breakthrough for me as a parent was when he got old enough to understand the why so especially around the, the the concept of kindness so what he did if it was you know could be painted in a way that it was being unkind you know you didn't you threw your food on the floor well, that's not very kind is it now we've got to pick it up that really 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 got to him that was the the, the thing that really changed my parenting thing so whether it's with you know a, a, a smack on the ass sometimes or not like you said if a kid's getting smacked and they have no idea why then then trauma just yeah you're, yeah exactly you just abuse them but if but if it's a physical stimuli that helps you know underline their actions but then they understand why and like you said it's punctuated them with with love again that's a very different thing than coming home pissed off from work and beating up your kid yeah, or your kid gets on your nerve and you just smack him or something. It's like completely different. <laughs> yeah, you know, absolutely. All right. Well, then, with that same kind of time period, what were your career aspirations? Had you always thought about the military, or was there something else prior to that? Um, no, I always wanted to be a football player, man. I wanted to be a football player. I was like, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna play football. But yeah, I end up being like five ten, hanging out at about two twenty five, you know, or so. Um, and I did good. I played Ironman football at my, at my, you know, 6A school. So it was a big school. I probably could have walked onto some team somewhere, but I had a, I had a buddy's dad who had, uh, I mean, he just, he played football and he was just twitchy, man. He, I just remember watching him try to like do life. And I just remember being like, I don't want to have these types of brain, brain issues that I was feeling like I was noticing. Um, so then I was like, you know what? Maybe football's not right for me. Maybe I should join the Marine Corps. <laughs> that way I'll save my brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, just get blown up a couple times by IEDs <laughs> and just barely survive a few things, and it's just way smarter, you know. Um, so then the way the Marine Corps, I mean, it just, I got to that age in high school, and I was, like, mortified, right? Because I was like, I got to go do something. I hate school hate i hated school from the first day i had to go to school for me school was a survival experience it was like i skipped a grade in the bahamas which the bahamas school system is is quite advanced um it, it was quite i found it to be quite advanced to the one in america i came to america and i was like this is this is very easy this is so then i stopped applying myself um and uh i fell behind and then I learned kind of more social dynamics in school because it just started to come down. I just learned how to get other people to do my work. And, um, you know, it's like someone say it's a bad thing, but it's turned out to make me um, a much more capable entrepreneur uh, in the long run because now I, I really know how to leverage and synergize people that have specialties uh, to create a product. 
which, you know, we're just seeing in my industry how I'm the, the things that I'm able to do. Right. Um, but, uh, so that was kind of my school experience. I was mortified to go to college. I was like, I can't do this for another, you know, four years. This is just not who Byron is. So then the football thing was on the table and I was like, ah, I don't want to go beat myself up. And I just don't have enough, like the passion's waning, but I really, really, really liked, uh, Tom Clancy's, uh, um, <laughs> Oh, uh, what was the game, man? Ghost Recon, man. I was digging on Ghost Recon. So I was like, you know what? This is pretty awesome. And then Tears of the Sun came out. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to join the military. So I told my buddy, I'm going to become a Marine. And um, really, for all the people who couldn't do it, who couldn't fight for, who couldn't fight for their country, and all the people that uh, deserve to be fought for and for what America stood for, and, and, to find my own manhood because there was no way I was going to be able to have anything that I could compare to my father's manhood because he's so ridiculously manly and ridiculously intelligent and ridiculously successful in the Bahamas. Um, I was like, what am I going to do? This guy's going to be talking down to me for the rest of my life. I was like, fine, I'll go to war um, to settle my own scores with myself and him. So uh, that's when the Marine Corps thing came and it just, you know, it, it was one of those, I make decisions very quickly and uh, sometimes it's helped me and sometimes it's hurt me, but that's been one of the best decisions I've ever made, but I survived by the grace of God, you know. Brilliant. Now, what was your boot camp experience like? You, you know, you were a pretty high level athlete before you walked in the door. <laughs> so boot camp, man, I'm, I, 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 yeah, so I'm, I'm, you know, at the top of my team kind of, you know high level athlete in my in, in my relative to my environment my area and stuff um i think i was weighing like 225 at the end of my senior year maps they're like yo bro nah man you got to drop weight so i cut down to like 211 just to get in the door and i had to cut again to like 206 so i'm like spitting wearing fat like sweatsuits doing all kinds of stuff um but i get it done I get into uh, receiving, the Marine Corps takes one look at me, you know, uh, calls me an obese Marine, literally, that's like in boot camp, and they're like, give me all my obese Marines up here. Nobody moves. Then they walk through the whole uh, platoon, and they grab, you know, pluck every fat body they can find. So I'm one of the fat bodies, and I'm, I'm sitting here like, yo, I mean, I'm in the best shape of my life i just got out of high school we've been crushing steel like like you know i mean kids on my team you know we're repping 225 20 30 times like we're deadlifting we're doing all that stuff like we're really fit kids so like you know i i'm kind of like i'm looking great like what's this drill instructor gonna say to me he pulls out that little chart i forget the name of it right now but it's the chart i call it the chart for little people <laughs> <laughs> the bmi yeah, that stinking thing. I, I, I <laughs> never fit on that thing, man. So he looks me dead in my eyeball sockets. I'm proud of myself. I'm 206. You know, I'm feeling hollowed out. He's like, you will be under, it was like 192 before you leave, uh, leave my freaking boot camp or whatever. So I'm like mortified, you know. So I'm standing there in my whitey tidies. He gives me a fat kid tab. I have to wear a fat kid tab all through boot camp, so <laughs> I get half rations. 
and I just was like, how the heck is, is this going to happen? But I left boot camp 175 pounds by the time they were done with me. And it was the first time in my entire life I fit the BMI thing. I was I looked like an underwear model. It was pretty, pretty completely different. But so that was kind of one of the more traumatic things in boot camp was just getting hollowed out. But I, um, I learned a lot about myself, man. I learned that I could, you know, I learned the things that, um, I learned that my boundaries and my limits, uh, were just self-imposed, man. I, I, I wish every civilian in the world could go through that, could go through boot camp because you just, you can have excuses or you can have results. And it's like, you really have no idea what you're capable of until someone someone pushes you. You know, like you need. I, I feel like you know. It's. I don't know if I would have ever found this other side of me without going through that trauma, which was just so healthy. Um, yeah. It's interesting you talk about the BMI because I'm on the other side. I'm six foot and 168. So, so they'd be like, "Oh, I'm so you're you're a death's door. You need to eat." It's like, "No, I'm just I'm just lean. That's all." But the BMI, that height and the weight, and just the, like that complete straight line, not taking into account anything else, it is is ridiculed in the strength and conditioning world. But yeah, is adhered to so tightly by so many organizations. Yeah, man, that's exactly exactly because in the Marine Corps, like in the fleet, I was able to tape out of whatever the BMI said. So like BMI, I never fit under the BMI again, but they just take my body fat and, you know, I'd be sitting there in the duty hut and there'd be like some kind of like overweight staff NCO, like making me take my shirt off and taping me. And I'm like 20 some year old Marine who's like, literally I'll do our whole work day and then I'll go hit the gym for three hours. Uh, cause I'm training for the fight of my life, you know, and then, <laughs> but I'm way overweight, but I am like crushing all the activities. And so it was a completely different experience in the fleet, but in boot camp, yeah, you had to fit in, man. So I, I learned how to survive. I learned how to, you know, um, find shortcuts. And in all of these high pressure situations, I learned how to make the people around me more efficient. So like, so we could fight together more efficiently so in football i have really 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 so you know i've been diagnosed with like the dyslexia and all that you know the fun labels they come up with for you when you're a young man growing up in the system the school system that's how i like to say it but um they worked out to my advantage in football i had a really hard time memorizing plays so i came up with a whole language where we would be on the line and we could tell each other what our assignments were so i'd be like yo i need some i'm you know i i, I got ice cream i got ice cream well that means you got a scoop block you know i'm going fishing that means you got to hook hook this guy right here you know second level means i'm gonna go hit the linebacker so we <clears throat> i came up with a language and we had the best year <clears throat> our school had, had ever had that senior year same thing in boot camp you know i i learned how to get our platoon to work together in a way that just helped us be more efficient. And then, and, and really in the fleet, you know, they, they, the same things happened when we got to Iraq and we had our strong and weak Marines. They gave me all the weakest guys and in my platoon, I thought they were trying to kill me. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that gunny might've been, we had some issues, but yeah, man, I, I turned it into, I turned them into a well-oiled machine and then they gave me all the strongest guys that wouldn't work together because they were all studs, you know? 
Interesting. So, yeah. so well, I love to ask people um, in the military the, this kind of uh, discussion next because as someone who never joined the military, I was in the first responder community, um, I see the, the polarizing sides that are sold to Americans, you know, or the British or whoever's, you know, at home. Um, but two things that seem to be uh, common denominators to all these men and women I've had on the, that have served is the the observation that the families in the countries they're deployed to, most of them are exactly the same as the families they left in their home country, you know, mothers and fathers and children just wanting to, you know, so, to get through their day and, and thrive. And then also there's often like the first time they saw some true atrocities being um being performed by some of these these people that they're hunting that that kind of made them realize that that they were doing something good in the world. So it's kind of a loaded question, but what what were your impressions as a young, you know, high school grad with the military training when you went out there, your your preconceptions versus what you actually saw with your own eyes? <clears throat> um that's a fantastic question. Uh, it's like, I, I, I like appreciate being asked this question. It's something that I try to communicate to people, um, with regards to combat, um, <laughs> like to keep it PG. I remember asking my seniors, my seniors had just gotten back from Fallujah and, um, you know, I got put in a gun team with Eric Hicks, who's like my big brother in the Marine Corps. And, uh, you know, me like being the new little Lance killer, I'm like, Hey, uh, you know, corporal, what, what's combat like? And he, you know, to keep it PG, he's like, it's a mind job. So I'm like a mind job. Like, what, what does this mean? He's like, I can tell you anything and everything about kind of what happened to me and what you can kind of expect. He's like, but you just not, you're not going to be able to grasp it until it happens. And that's what my, uh, recruiter told me about boot camps. They can't tell you everything's going to happen, but you're just going to have to walk through it. So, but to give you some perspective, I got to Iraq and, uh, you know, we did our initial invasion into Haditha. It was like 3 a.m. or something like that in the morning. We got skeletons painted on our faces. Uh, we link up with our Iraqi army counterparts in the desert just off the coast, just a little ways away from the city. Uh, we clip the power to the city. The whole city goes black. So now you're in the desert. There's no light source. There's nothing. Like, this was a dark, black night. No moon. Very little ambient light. And um, <clears throat> you're staring at a city. You're driving towards it. Um, and it disappears. You know, uh, another unit tried to beat us into the city. Uh, they run into a minefield. The vehicle explodes right in front of us. We're watching everything cook off. And guys are running around it's just mayhem and i remember kind of thinking like you know what this doesn't look real when i see like the big mushroom cloud from the vehicle and i hear a voice in my mind it's like hey son you you don't know what real is yet so i'm just like okay uh we're still about to invade so we shoot apobs into the city which is a big like i don't remember like 50 yard line of grenades on a string with a rocket pulling it into a straight line, you shoot it into a minefield, we blow a big um, trench into this minefield, and then tanks go running in. Uh, in front of us, we run in behind the tanks, we invade the city. Um, it was amazing, exhilarating, 
the first person that I almost engaged was a man uh, holding on crutches. It was an old man who was in his kitchen uh, cooking some tea. And I first thing I saw was his hand and the wooden handle of his crutches, which I thought was an AK. So I almost engaged him. Uh, scared me in so many ways. You know, scared me for my life. But then the humanity of it all was very... Uh, you know, just inner psychically confusing, right? <laughs> um, and you do realize as you're in this city and it is a straight up twilight zone that there's a lot of humanity here. Those people were really, really generally quite respectful when they weren't trying to kill you. Would you'd be setting security, they'd come up to you and be like, Hey, Mr. Mr. Uh, Chai, like give you tea, give you hobus, which is bread, try to take care of you while you're out on a street corner. It's 130, 120, 130 degrees out. You're literally cooking. You, you're cooking your MRE on the pavement next to you while you're laying on the pavement, you know? Um, and so there was a big degree of humanity in there that you had to really come to terms with. Um, and you had to realize that you were there for your buddies and you're there to get your buddies back. Kind of like the problems that we see in America. Um, it's not so much a race issue. It's not even so much as much of a force on force issue. It's like a good person versus a bad person issue, regardless of culture, creeds, skin, like uniform, all those things aside. It's it's a good person versus bad person thing that we're, we ended up realizing we we're having to deal with. Uh, because, I mean, we took over, I invaded well over uh, 20 some country, uh, not countries, but villages and townships and provinces. And you're in these people's houses, you're taking over their houses, you're essentially taking them hostage, you're utilizing their structures. And you do realize that in many ways, they're, they're just humans. Um, <clears throat> value systems are different, you know, uh, very different in some ways. You know, we, we came to some houses where we saw things that we, we, you know, were very traumatic, um, which I could give you examples of that if you like, but there's a high degree of humanity. And even to this day, I love and respect the Iraqi people. Like I, I love them actually for what I, the things that went on and experienced and even fighting and things like that. So there was, there's a lot to be said about that, uh, the humanity of, 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 of combat. But you have to remember um, combat can make you, you, you kind of almost have to turn into something else sometimes and you can't let that, uh, poison you too deeply, you know? Um, and it can when you're doing combative type tasks. And I definitely experienced that as well, which I can talk about if you want, but I feel like I've been talking for a minute, so. <laughs> no, no, I've, I'm, I'm intrigued. Both the things that you want to expand on, please do. And also you touched on PG. There's no PG element to this podcast, so you can, you can speak freely. <laughs> okay. Yeah, man, I mean, there was just, uh, I remember one time I was sitting there and I, and I was a squad leader, so I had my squad out. We're working, we're, you know, invading, you know, taking houses and searching houses and doing things. I remember doing these little exercises in my mind and being like, so how do these atrocities happen? You know? And I remember being like, well, if they told you, you could go home right now, would you smoke this family that's in front of you? Like if they said you could leave Iraq right now, but you got to smoke this family, like, would you do it? And I remember thinking like, man, I'd, 
to go home right now? Like, yeah, I probably would. Like, I remember thinking that to myself. Like, then of course, like my higher brain was like, nah, dude, can't do that. But I remember being like surprised at like the willingness to do just whatever needed to get done. I remember the way I felt inside. I remember just being kind of like, you have to turn into an animal in some ways. And um, when it came down to it, when I did run into a situation uh, where I had just been hit by 60 some pounds of homemade explosives, I got blown up, I had an out of body experience, thought I was dead, may have been dead, I don't even know, doctors were nowhere around. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, kind of was out of my body for a minute and like, you know, had this whole chain of events in place once everything's done. I find myself standing in a garage staring at these six guys. I'll never forget it. And, uh, you know, they're the only ones there that could have blown us up. And they're dressed like, you know, the enemy. They're acting like the enemy. And I remember being like, man, we could smoke these dudes right now, you know, uh, for this. But I remember letting them go because it just wasn't quite right because of rules of engagement. You know, they surrendered to us. Yeah, they just tried to blow us up. Yeah, they're kind of mouthing off to us. Um, but I remember at the end, when it came down to it, I, I had my guys stand down and we did the right thing with those guys. But uh, but I remember feeling that blackness in my heart. And then I remember coming back to the civilian side of things and asking myself that question again and being like, hey, dude, like, so I remember how you felt in Iraq. Like, given that opportunity again, would you smoke that, that, <clears throat> that family, that village? Uh, or would you would you just do the rest of your deployment? I was like, man, I can't believe I was so down to even have that conversation or be like that. Um, and so it was just that mind job, man. And you can see having that much perspective, realizing that you're capable of that much carnage and violence, I think is so stinking healthy because people look at other people's lives and they're like, oh, I would never do that. How do people do that? How do da 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 da? And it's like, dude. I can sit here and I can tell you, you're capable of almost anything. You just have not been in the right situation. You know, I've been to over 60 countries. I've seen the world multiple times. I've seen death. I've seen some crazy things. I just think humans are capable of a lot, man. And I think if you don't think you're capable of it, you just might not have had enough experience to really understand. Like how boot camp helps you understand a lot more about yourself. <clears throat> Trauma really can help you understand a lot more about yourself. Um, and then, you know, with regards to what I mentioned earlier and the cultural differences, you know, I, we ran into multiple houses where, you know, there's just like, you're, you're, you're searching the backyard and there's like a bunch of flies in a pile eating something. And you're like, what's going on out here? And you're like, see a little string and you like follow the string and there's like this kind of deadish thing back there. And you find out one of the kids is just tied to a string and left out in the backyard to die. Um, because because they're you know maybe mentally handicapped and in their culture like these are it's like you want to like you're so outraged and so upset um that you 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 just you're blown away but at the same time you're just kind of like looking at these people in their eyes and they genuinely believe that they're not doing anything wrong. <laughs> you know, you're like, what is this? You know, there's there's a kid out here dying, starving to death. There's flies in his mouth, like he's unconscious almost. And you guys are just 
giving us chai tea like it's fine and you're they're like what they're like mr what like this this kid is like no good like it's no it's okay it's okay it's okay like have some more rice and you're like looking at these guys you know have some more you know chai samoon de judge whatever and you're like and they genuinely believe they're not doing anything wrong you know so it it's, it blows you away it's horrendous. I and mean, it reminds me of, uh, I did, when I was in first, uh, we call first year, which would be, uh, go, would that be sixth grade in America? I think we had religious education, one of the classes I took. And the one that I think it was the first class we had, they talked about morality, the definitions. So you have moral, immoral, and amoral. And I think that's where we see some of the troubles is if someone has been raised to believe that you know, throwing gay men and women off buildings it's is like fine. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's not immoral. It's it's within the code. Then you know that. Then you have to can really pull back to kindness and compassion. And does chaining a special needs child to a yard is that kind? You know, if that was you, what would you know? If you if you did it to your own child that wasn't special needs, how would you feel? And I think that's the problem with some of these these uh, doctrines that people subscribe to is they've kind of lost lost their way when it comes to the core of kindness and compassion that I think most of these holy books were originally founded on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I find that that, that kindness and compassion is what like without it, it's literally impossible to connect or influence. Like you have to have that in order to like, you know, all right, like you said, I can just speak freely. Like if I if I run into someone who's when I in my life, if I ran into someone who's like racist or prejudiced and they're treating me like crap because I'm a black guy, you know, like the only thing in my experience that has helped that situation is to give them a positive experience with a black guy. So like maybe I can or can't help them. You know what I mean? But if I get triggered, like I've found it infinitely more helpful especially even in the marine corps where dudes were like man i didn't even know like i didn't really know any black people i just didn't like them because that's how i was raised you know and like me and this guy are having a great exchange we're having a good time or the other one i talked to that's like no man black people like jumped me every day on the way home from school you know like i'm now having a conversation and exchange with a guy because i didn't get triggered when he dropped the n-bomb or when he said some snide comment or when he did something wrong to me, because I, I understand like <clears throat> in the human experience, that human is just doing the best he can with the tools he has based on what he believes life has shown him. And now I'm empowered and I'm in a position to give him to disrupt that. I can either be what he says or I can disrupt that and make it really, really hard for him to hate all people that look like me. I can at least build in. Uh, an experience in reality that says that his schema and his story about his rules for reality might not be that accurate. I can build that doubt in, even if he does something wrong to me and I still repay him with reasonability and kindness. And he's like, oh, maybe not all black people are that way. Maybe this, you know, gave you something to think about because I was cool with you. And um, that compassion, I find, is what empowers me to do that. And I think that's actually real strength on a deep level in many ways. Absolutely. Well, and what I'm seeing with, with this kind of, ex again, the extreme dialogue that's happening, which is distracting from any real progress, is that it's, it's the division, you know, and again, that, yeah, that, that 
compassion and kindness element. Let's take prisons, for example. I mean, the, the growth of the prisons in the US is nauseating over the last 50 years. And, you know, I think that documentaries like 13th have a very powerful point about, you know, slavery being abolished and, and basically prisons becoming the new version of that. But the human side is there are 2.3 million human beings of all colors and creeds locked away in American prisons. And a lot of that has to do with our drug policy and, and criminalizing addiction, turning, you know, addicts, mental health patients into criminals. So when you solve the human element, you then address the problems for, for society, all colors and creeds. But if you just, you know, you, you segregate each other and you say, Oh, this, this white guy said this or this black guy said that you, you're stopping the solution. And even slavery itself, I was thinking the other day, it was, it was just, you know, bad luck that the British decided it was the African countries they were going to pull the slaves from. And I mean, there's slavery all over the world, but it's not about the color even. There's the nauseating fact is a few men predominantly got extremely wealthy from slavery. It wasn't about that they hated the skin color. They didn't give a, they didn't care if you were Filipino, African, you know, Icelandic. They just wanted people to work for free so they could get rich. And when we realize that it's money and greed and power behind a lot of this, and only the very, very few that have gained, maybe the most of the human population will actually stand side by side and go, this is bullshit. We need to change the fundamental reasons for a lot of the problems that we're seeing. 100% and our perspectives on them. Yeah. That's huge. All right. Well, I get out of my soapbox. <laughs> no, nah, I love it. That was fantastic, man. I, I didn't even, I mean, even my brain turned a corner when you were like, it's not even really about the color of your skin. This is business. Cause that, that, that is, that's a great chewy thought that I think a lot of people need to, need to actually consider. Yeah. Really look into. <laughs> right. Well, I want to go back to you. You kind of went over it for a second, but I think it's very powerful. And I'm sure it, it pertains a lot to some of your struggles when you transitioned out as well. But TBIs are really starting to manifest now as one of the underlying issues for, you know, mental uh, struggles for, you know, soldiers, law enforcement, combat athletes um, transitioning out. So tell me about that. Tell me about the explosions, plural, and then the one where you had that out of, out of body experience. Sweet. So, yeah, man, I mean, I was in a number of explosions, uh, four or five of them that are like notable. <laughs> and it just is one of those things where you just, it, you know, there are, I mean, there's many factors, man. Like the PTSD thing for me was just, you know, you're waiting for stuff to happen all the time. You're hypervigilant. You're always like on, you're going. And honestly, man, and I know this might not be popular, but I've used that to really, really, I feel like I've really leveraged that in my life, you know, because now, you know, in private security, in executive protection, I, I, I've kept that muscle strong. Uh, to where my hypervigilance is like such an asset, like where most people are like getting exhausted about being aware all the time. I just don't even feel normal until I'm in a good spot, have mastery of my environment, taking everything in. So I, so I've at least told myself I've leveraged it effectively and that's positive, uh, which man, I'm a really big believer in having some really good quality confirmation bias, implementing some really good beliefs 
that uh, that that will bring you power because you're going to suffer from confirmation bias about the things you believe. So believe things that are going to bring you power and keep you freaking moving. You know what I'm saying? So um, that's one of the things I dig. But uh, with regards to TBIs, uh, I got rocked the last time I got I got blasted. And I actually one of the biggest uh, upsets of my Marine Corps careers, I had to sit out our very last mission. I got to get helicoptered out because I, I was in so many significant blasts. Um, and they were like, we can't afford to have you get hit again. Um, saw 13 IEDs uh, in my first deployment. Uh, not, and I, But I wasn't in all of them. Um, but yeah, man, I, uh, I was just rolling down the street. And um, I remember being upset. And I was singing a song and, um, and, uh, I, I just, I was singing a song and I remember hearing my buddy come over the radio, uh, Foster and Foster had been hit by a bunch of IDs, man. He had like a sixth sense for these things. Um, and he's like, Hey, you know, Tonto, which is our call sign for our sergeant. He's like, Hey, I got a bad feeling. Let me slow down. And, uh, and check things out and so he slows down to check things out and uh i roger up on it too and as he rolls to a stop i just remember being in a room like a black environment like all of a sudden everything was black and i'm kind of looking around i wasn't in pain i wasn't upset i was like fine like i was like happy-ish like i was kind of like hanging <clears throat> but I was really kind of disoriented because I didn't know where I was. <clears throat> and I was just kind of like, where am I? Like, what's going on? But I felt good. And um, all of a sudden, I remember just kind of being like, well, what was the last thing I was thinking about? And straight up, I wish it was sexier and I wish it was cooler. But the last thing I was thinking about is why is this water cooler trying to come up my ass? And I, <laughs> I was sitting on the back of, I was sitting in the safest place because I was the troop commander in the back. I had my squad. I had to make sure I was healthy and I could command my teams. So I was sitting there in the safest back left corner on top of a Gatorade water cooler, you know, the types they dump on their coaches after you win a football game. And I remember I, I saw my thoughts like a green cursor, like those old MS-DOS computers or like, kind of like the Matrix. And I was like, why is the water cooler trying to come up my ass? And they're just, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, that was my last thought. And then I was kind of like, well, geez, well, where, like, what was going on? And then I started remembering like, oh, I was on a, I was on a mission. I was on a, on a patrol in Iraq. And then I was like, oh, we got blown up. And then the deepest sorrow I've ever experienced in my entire life hit me in the gut. Like I just felt in my stomach this explosion of just the deepest, <laughs> darkest sorrow I have ever experienced. To this day, it scares me. And I think about this, this feeling, uh, which is one of the things that drives me because I don't want to experience this again. <clears throat> I'm going to die, but hey, I don't want it to be like this. And I remember being so upset because I was realizing that I, um, I was like, man, I'm dead. And I just remember being like, my gosh, like I'm dead. I'm a pile of guts on the floor. I got blown up in an IED. And I remember coming to grips with it. And I remember being like, I haven't even lived. 
Like I'm like, I'm 19 and I haven't even lived. I haven't been on purpose. I haven't really like even gotten after it. Like I'm still just warming up. I remember just being like, there was no deliberation really, you know, like I didn't even become smart enough to be deliberate. And I just remember that was killing me. And I remember then the next thought I had was I failed because my dad, when I told him I was going to join the Marine Corps, he dangled me off the stinking halfway off the hotel balcony and, and telling me not to do it. And I remember, you know, him being like, why aren't you afraid? I was like, cause either you're going to drop me off this balcony or I'm going to join the Marine Corps. Like, you know, that's what's going to happen now. And he was like, okay, I support you. He was like, but don't die. So I was like, oh man, I failed my dad and I failed everyone. My mom tried to hide my passport. I went and made another one and still joined anyway. <laughs> um, so I remember feeling this deep sorrow of, I wasn't deliberate. I didn't go hard at life. And I failed everybody. And so I started just seeing my family and mom, I'm sorry, dad. And then I saw everyone in my mind's eye or whatever. And I just remember being like, mommy, I'm sorry, dad. I'm sorry. You know, I saw my girlfriend. I was like, I'm sorry. I apologized to everyone on my, everybody. And then, uh, it's like, I could see them, but they couldn't see me kind of thing. And then I got to my grandma. Now, my grandma been telling me, <laughs> and it's so cheesy. This is what happened, man. My grandma been telling me since I was little. She's like, if Byron, if anything's ever stronger than you, you just. And my grandma's like a Cherokee, African American, you know, old lady in Gig Harbor, which is country-ish Washington. She, you know, works out on the farm. She's still. Well, she has a few acres. She calls in her farm. She still go out and garden every single day. She's she's chopping trees down. She's like, you know, she's just one of those uh, just awesome humans that just loves outside. You know, has got that Cherokee blood, looks like an Indian. Anyways, you know, she's my grandma, you know, and she's like been telling me since I was little, Byron, if anything's ever stronger than you, you just you say, Jesus, 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 my third time it'll go away. So, man. I uh, I remember seeing my buddy staring at my body, uh, some at some point in this whole exchange, and I couldn't look down at myself. And I heard my grandma. And I saw my grandma, and I just started praying. And I just my buddies still make fun of me to this day. They're like, "Yeah, I remember. I saw you on the roof of the seventh, unfolding in half, with your feet up by your head, and your hands were outstretched, and you had this." crazy surprised look on your face because you just got blown up and then next thing you know you're down in the undercarriage of the truck and you're like jesus 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 and then before i knew it i was back in my body and i couldn't move for a little bit and then all of a sudden my body like powered back up i remember being like i'm not gonna die here there's no way i'm gonna die here and a small fire started inside the inside the, the troop compartment and um I remember my 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 squad, like all my jindies, we call them, the younger Marines that I was in charge of, were just uh, stuck. Like they just were shell shocked, you know. And I remember <clears throat> getting my body back, getting control of my body, kicking the back of the ladder out because it had been hinged and kind of welded shut on us. Um, and then I blacked out again, and I woke up about thirty yards away in a field. <clears throat> they said I'd like <laughs> they said I like straight up went into kind of like crackhead strength mode kicked it back <laughs> <laughs> kicked it back and then 
seven ton ladder down, jumped out about 15 feet, sprinted, you know, across his body, a little water thing, a wadi and into this field. And then that's when I came back too. And I looked back at the seven ton and my guys are still in there like panicking. And, and that's when I started yelling at him and we, we got out of the, got him out of the seven ton. We got to work. And this is when we, uh, assaulted the nearest building and the whole entire area had been deserted because we dropped leaflets telling everyone we were invading and it, we'd been doing work in there for a few months at that point. And we rolled up on a mechanic shop and there's six guys in there. And, you know, like generally when you're dealing with like the harmless population, they're, they're wearing their like traditional we'll call them man dresses you know their traditional garb you know like um <clears throat> but these cats had sneakers and track suits on and jeans and stuff and a lot of times you know and everyone gets faulted for profiling but i I'm, i swear if you don't know how to profile you uh, uh you, you you you're vulnerable to a lot of things with regards to not being able to read humans so these guys fit the profile perfectly of being, you know, foreign fighters and insurgents. Um, and they were the only guys in the environment. <clears throat> so we pulled them all out of the building, you know, and uh, brought them to their knees and started questioning them. And this is when I'm like, who here speaks English? And one guy looks at me and, and smirks and is like, I don't speak English. <laughs> and like, you know, in like a New York accent almost. Like the guy <laughs> spoke perfect English, you know. So. Dick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we know what's going on. And I just remember being like, man, we got drop weapons in the car. These are the guys that blew us up. You know, they got all the right gear on. They got everything, you know. Um, but uh, my buddy, uh, my squad were like, we need to smoke these dudes. A lot of my dudes were like, let's just smoke these dudes. We know they did it. And... I just remember being like, nah, because my guys are going to have to live with that. Like, you know, like who knows if you can live with it. And it just wasn't quite right. So I remember looking at my younger Marines, especially, and being like, I don't, I don't want them to have to live with this. So I just remember being like, nah, we're not going to smoke. We're going to detain them and fight them another day because they'll be back out on the street tomorrow with the, the numbers we write on their foreheads for today. And uh, they'll be a little richer. They'll have like 20 bucks and some fresh water. And we'll just fight them tomorrow, I guess. But I, I know I made the right decision in that in that instance. But yeah, man, <clears throat> that was the paradox of Iraq. You know, like one minute you're running down the street and I have little kids looking at me like I'm an astronaut because I'm the most high tech thing they've ever seen. Mr. Mr. We love you, Marines. Yeah, Marines. Yeah. Like, I want, I'm a Habibi Marines. Like, I love Marines. Marines are good. You guys, we thank you. We love you. And then you're looking at the kid and you're like, I'm about to turn a corner, go to your house, go into your house, take your whole family hostage, search everything, probably leave the place a complete mess. <clears throat> and whether you know it or not, your dad may or may not be helping the insurgents. So we're about to take your dad off to prison or maybe kill him right, and fight him, you know, right in front of you because what he believes versus what we believe. And you would see that happening repeatedly. And so it was just this dizzying mind job with this counterbalance of humanity and what you needed to do, which just culminated in the reality of you just need to get you and your guys home. And uh, also, while also trying to swallow the reality that you know what you're doing is going to cause us to, 
to have to go back there or someone because <laughs> they're, they're not going to be able to defend themselves. Yeah, when it underlines how not black and white these decisions that you have to make are, because like you said, you know, you were compassionate and you did the, well, I think what most people call the right thing. But in a way, like you said, if they truly were um, insurgents, then they will be out there again. They may even kill you and your entire entire squad next time. So it's very easy for us to sit, you know, where there's no war and start being all judgy over some of these decisions. But especially in the, the, the heat of war and the heat of battle where... You know, an after-action report said, "Oh, these, the, you know, these these civilians were killed." Well, yeah, I mean, it's awful. And they said it's the human element again. But to hang, you know, a soldier out to dry, a marine out to dry, that had a split second to think, that may have been sleep deprived, that may, you know, have been dark, and and now analyze it Monday morning quarterback it. Yeah, there's some horrendous atrocities in in war, and we know of them. You know, Vietnam was a classic example of some of those, but. You know, it, it you can't understand what the battlefield like the same way as you can't understand what inside a structure fire is like, or you know, a mass shooting, you know, on the stateside, unless you've actually been there yourself. So, I I'm, I thank you for for painting that picture and telling your story because I think it's very important that you know myself and and other civilians really hear what it's like and what those decisions are make. And sometimes you make the right one, sometimes you make the wrong one. Yeah, man. No, 100%. I, and that, like that, that initial invasion to Haditha was where I really ran into that instantly. Like the lights came on that next morning. There's kids coming out. They're running around telling us how cool we are. They love us. And, you know, we search that neck, that first house. I find a 155 ready to explode. Um, <clears throat> we find weapons caches. We find drugs. Uh, adrenaline we find fake passports and you know now i've got some kid who was like in love with me thought i was the coolest thing in the world um and now his whole family's out on the lawn you know uh, uh proned out and we're trying to figure out like you know taking taking his dad to prison and facing the reality that we'll probably have to fight him later fight him and his, you know, his son later and and it's it's just that quick and then you know you're in a firefight and ten, you know, or or in that same house, I find hundreds of casings on the roof where his dad was shooting an RPK at us the night before, you know. And so you're just watching this, this this cycle. But you have to be ready to drop the hammer at any second. You have to realize you can die at any second. Um, and you also have to make sure that you don't like get so poisoned by it that you make the wrong decisions and and all those different dynamics, man. It's and I think. One movie that really, really does, I forgot how good of a job it was, it was Platoon, man. I watched Platoon again recently, and I I felt the way those guys felt when they, after their buddy got killed and they went into that village. I know that feeling. I've been on that mission, you know. And that whole Barnes and Elias is inside of each and every one of us is so real. It gives me chills just thinking about it because I... I I've seen that, and a lot of people don't have that luxury of having experienced that. So it's it's really difficult to make good judgments about human nature and human experience without that. I think. Well, I've never thought of that concept of those those two characters being the opposing forces inside each one of us. That you just blew my mind on that film. Oh man, yeah, it's beautiful the way they outline it because it's like one neither of them is completely correct or completely righteous, especially if you understand 
the the platoon dynamic of it. You know what I mean? It's 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 it shows the duality of man. You know, and it's it's I feel like many times, you know, the I wouldn't say the most righteous way, but many times, what's right is just so not black and white. It's so like it's so just in the moment discerning is the best way I could try to articulate it. <laughs> but even then you never know, you know what I mean? Even then, you know, it's like, I just did the best I could. Your parents, guess what? They did the best they could. You know what I mean? That's the beauty and the tragedy of, 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 of growing up and of life and of humanity. Right. <laughs> Everyone's just doing the best they can. It's like a joke. Almost. And I think it's a, it's a good parallel to what we're seeing at the moment with law enforcement. There are undoubtedly, some atrocities and what we saw with George Floyd was nothing other than an atrocity, a complete abuse of power and a disgrace to the profession. But, uh, you know, I see a lot of these gray area ones, you know, you're standing in front of those, those six men, you know, you're looking at that elderly gentleman holding his crutch and mm -hmm. uh, crutch, not crutch. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, but, but with a clear thought, with that clear mind, you're able to make the correct judgment in that moment with a poorly trained, sleep deprived, whatever was behind a poor decision, you make the wrong choice. Now you just murdered an elderly civilian. And that's what I see a lot with the, these gray area videos. You know, there's some that are 100% justified. Yeah, you know, oh, the person was running away. Yeah, but he just shot th three people and he was heading towards an elementary school. I'm sorry, but your argument yeah. is invalid. And then, you yeah. know, you get all these horrible things that we're seeing where, you know, children holding toy guns and all these examples where it was the other side. And that's just it. We need to be able to understand that, yes, these two extremes exist. And, you know, hiring practices and training and, you know, all these other things can help lesser the you know the chances of these happening and we have to pull all our resources into law enforcement to make them better at their job to make them better with you know defensive tactics with with you know weapons training with all these kind of things and with community policing you know building but you know if we just go and demonize the entire profession then that only makes the police department even worse and then increases the likelihood of these things happening again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, 100%, man. And like, oh my gosh, there's like so much to say. And, and, and even if we poured all the money in the world into the police department, guess what? You're still going to have the human element because the reality is humans aren't perfect and they don't make the best decisions and they have issues and prejudices and baggage and they have these things they're dealing with. And when you can show me a demographic of humans anywhere, professionally or organic to any culture that doesn't have issues, then you know what? I'll say that the police profession shouldn't have it. Well, shouldn't have any issues. Obviously they have to adhere to the highest standards. You know, even being a Marine, I, you know, I'm, I'm about that life, you know, my kids will be upset at the standards they have to live by, right? But the, re the reality is, because I'm about, I'm about standards, but I feel like the reality is, man, like saying all police or anything is just as, oh man, what's a great, nice word, way of saying it. It's short, just as short-sighted as saying all black guys are gangsters, you know, which is a stigma I've had to try to overcome my entire life is having to deal with the, the, the avatar that is in most Americans' minds about what and who a black guy is and how he should be and trying to tell my you know white friends like i'm not growing an afro dude i'm just not into that you know what i mean like um <laughs> so like i see this issue is like 
yes, we need to get these guys better trained to make better decisions. You know, um, healthy humans make better decisions. Uh, also, you know, public, you need to accept the reality that like, also there's a human element to every single one of these equations too, you know, like, um, and, and I, I think we need to honor and respect the people that are working hard for us. The other thing too, that I, I find extremely interesting is, um, the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the beyond the fact that there's a human element to all of it, um, is how people can say, I haven't found any black people that, I have not yet talked to anyone who said, we wanna defund all police departments. Like, I feel like the most dangerous thing, honestly, because you said I could go weapons free in here, I feel like the most dangerous thing is the media. Like, I feel like the divisive nature of the messaging that's being put to America is like trying to make this race issue more of an issue and i feel like it's because of an election coming up because and on my social media platforms i've been very deliberate about saying hey yo this is what i believe and i think the only remedy is for people who disagree to have thoughtful and respectful conversations so we can find out where we do agree and then we can maybe arrive at higher truth to remedy the situation and every single person that reaches out to me that we end up we end up talking and things like that what ends up happening is we agree on way more things than we disagree on. We might have to agree to disagree, but in some way, maybe even just incrementally, I arrive, we both arrive at a higher truth in some area. And uh, when I watch the news on the, and I, and I, and I subscribe to both channels cause I, I'm all about kind of social engineering, psychology, and like paying attention to things. I find that one channel is just trying to make you so angry at the other side that you believe that people who are on the other side have to be insane. And that I feel is true on both both CNN or Fox. And I feel like it's Pepsi and Coca-Cola both being owned by Coca-Cola and 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 that it's weakening our society. The divisiveness is really what's dangerous. And I posted a video the other day where it was Black Lives Matter at a Trump rally and the Trump rally folks were like, you know what? We might not agree with all their stuff, but they're Americans and we're gonna go on ahead and give them 30 seconds to talk. And they let them up there to talk. And by the end of the thing, everybody involved was like, you know what? We're all Americans and we all see, it. you know, it was a unifying thing because people got to hear each other out. We can agree to disagree on some things, but that humanity element and I think maybe I was blessed to go through combat and be able to maintain that and see that so that hopefully, I don't know, I can try to help people to remember and not forget the humanity element, regardless of how the media is portraying us to each other. Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more. And I've, I've said that very thing many, many times. And and again, I think it's it's a systemic issue. So you you divide, you know, you get the Al Sharpsons of the world who undoubtedly are making money and, and getting a lot of power from from their platforms. And then you get, just to pick on him for a second, you know, Donald Trump at the moment, who, if he gets reelected, well, that's money and power for him. There's no disguising that. There's just the reality. And the same be if Hillary Clinton got in. So it's left or right. But the to me, the way you, for example, reduce violence between civilians and police officers, for, for example, is that you address... The, the drug epidemic. There's countries in the planet that have criminal, decriminalized or even legalized 
addiction, not smuggling, not selling, but addiction, and completely revolutionized the the mental health crisis, the 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 prisons, the the judicial system, the safety in the prisons, the safety on the streets, just by that, rather than the quote unquote war, war on drugs that we have. And what happens at war? Lots of people die in war. Is and it's a hundred years old. Is it working? No, it's not fucking working. So, but we have bodies everywhere. So that's the thing. Is while we're picking sides, and you're absolutely right. There's no no question at all that these these media outlets and anyone else who's got a vested interest in gaining from this division is throwing fuel on the fire. We need to look at you know putting more money into our schools, whatever color and creed the kids are that are in. Um, lower income, so we're able to bring them up and educate them. The, you know, the the drug policies, the prison reforms, so that we create an environment for our men and women to thrive and not be driven towards crime because they were abused as a child and they found you know drugs and now they're you know whatever whatever wayward path. Yeah, I uh, and one of the huge examples that I that really. Because when I went to when I came back from Iraq and I saw things were being reported, it like vexed me and stopped me from even wanting to watch the news. But then I, the but then you know after a while I started kind of agreeing with certain things and started to like get back into it a little bit here and there. But this whole kind of divisiveness uh, hit me in my backyard recently because I was watching what's going on in Washington with Chaz uh, or Chop or whatever they're calling it. And, you know, me being a patriot, I'm sitting here eating my dinner like, man, shoot, I'll take I'll take next week off. Me and the boys will go down there and I guarantee you (laughs) we'll get we get we'll get Capitol Hill back for the United States by next Sunday. I promise, you know, and uh, I'm watching the news on it. And um, then they start talking about um, uh, this warlord that took over the. who, who, who's, you know, said he's the new police and has taken over uh, Capitol Hill and is like in, enforcing, you know, his laws and, you know, extorting people. And I uh, am watching and I'm like, who is this guy? And then all of a sudden they show me a picture and it's Raz, who's a local rapper, who is also my cousin. Really? Plot <laughs> 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 <Blood> twist. <laughs> you know, like, so I'm like, are I'm staring at my phone for like 10 minutes. My wife is like, are you okay? And I'm like, ah. like I don't even know what to say right now. You know? So I'm sitting here and I'm like, so of course, you know, I call my cousin up and I'm like, yo, uh, you know how it is when, when you're, <laughs> you're descending into a, a possibly tumultuous situation with a young man. Like, hey man, how you doing? <laughs> like, uh, everything okay? What's, what's new, bro? You know? And he's just like, no, nah, nothing, man. He's like, I'm great. Um, he's like, out here, um, the police left. He's like, they left the they left the precinct. He's like, so it's been a little chaotic. He's like, but you know, we're protecting it. We're making sure that you know these you know uh, rioters and and people that are trying to these extremists uh, who I believe are Antifa. But he's like. We're just making sure that it doesn't get burned down and the place doesn't get destroyed. Um, and so I started talking with him and and we ended up shooting a podcast episode that night because uh, the news outlets are positioning him as a as a domestic terrorist who has taken over Capitol Hill 
and has put these barricades in place to keep people out and is extorting the environment when in all actuality he's working with city officials to make sure that you know people inside the area are safe he's working with law enforcement to make sure they can get in and out uh to to help people he's working he's literally he's literally all he's doing he, he you'll you hear him say it during the interview he's like i just got tired of telling everyone i wasn't in charge you know after the first night went by and we made sure the station the police station didn't get burned down and 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 completely damaged and vandalized um you know the city officials kept coming to me like i was in charge he's like i just got tired of telling them i wasn't in charge so i was like yeah uh we could put the porta johns over here he's like we put barricades up their idea to put barricades up because uh traffic was driving into uh the, the, the people in the environment were getting ran over because they're walking through the streets. It's like a big block party out there. He's like, and people kept running people over. So we put barricades up. He's like, it's not, <laughs> it's not because we're autonomous. He's like, I don't even know where that term came from. He's like, I'm an American. Me and Solomon, you know, our uncle was the first black police chief of Tacoma, Washington. Like we, you know, like sure he has his, uh, slightly different views with regards to like law enforcement and accountability and whatever, you know, but like, he's like, I'm no terrorist. Like I, I love America. He's like, I would have left the country a long time ago if I had, if, if I had a problem with it, you know, he's, he's doing good with his little, with his rap career and stuff like that, you know? So, uh, you know, he like grows vegetables for inner city children and he, he does like, uh, um, profit sharing projects where he helps people get into real estate deals that couldn't get into him. Like the guy is not even remotely <laughs> what the whole world believes he is now. So I've been trying to help him get his message out, uh, get his message out, man. But so yeah, that, that happens. And so for me, seeing the way the news has portrayed him and continues to, um, it's just more of that divisive, very it's like no regard for truth and he's tried to get on the larger media outlets and it just seems like they have just basically decided he's the fall guy he's the terrorist wow well i'm i'm going to i'm going to link the the link to your interview with him and put it on the show notes for this interview as well so that way if people listening are curious then they can go to that as well and hear it for themselves rather than whatever version they hear from the left or right yeah man no thank you that so yeah you had the the id explosion um you did two tours eventually well, not eventually you did two tours um what caused you to make the decision to transition out of the marines um whew, man you know how to ask them good questions so basically uh the marine corps changed i like i said i have five sisters and all that stuff so i I joined the Marine Corps to be able to, in my opinion, be a man. And uh, I'm a very intense human. So I wanted to be able to go to a place where I could be as intense as I want. I could be organic. I could be myself. I can be hard. Like I go to bed at 11. I wake up at 4 a.m. to this day. Like I could, I could really just all like growing up, I was always like, you know, be nice, be polite, be gentle. Be, like I was always, I always felt like I had childproof scissors on, like everything was nerf, you know, but like I had this warrior ethos inside me, you know? So I, I wanted to go to a place where I could really test my metal. I didn't want to be a knight in shining armor whose metal hadn't been tested. Right. So I get in here, I'm amongst men. We're hard. We have a problem. We fight each other, you know, <laughs> like we meet, you know, 
Um, and it was literally like Lord of the Flies meets Juvenile Hall meets, you know, um, Uncle Sam's Misguided Children. Uh, we we were a legion of death dealers, you know, at and, and that were just they just kind of trained us to do what we did. And we, I loved it. But towards the end of that, that four years, um, the Marine Corps changed. And it started becoming more nerf and it started becoming more childproof scissors. And it was like my our men's club was like being ruined by all these rules and all these like, you know, just uh, it just it just it changed. So like, you know, you get a new Marine, whereas if he made a mistake, you know, you could discipline him. You could make him go run the hill. You could, you know we could solve our differences if we want to go meet in the back of the squad bay, you know, like we could make them do push-ups and pull like man, man discipline could happen. Now it just turned into like, he can go tell on you. And if he tells on you, you can get in trouble. Then they'll do paperwork on you and it could affect your entire career. Like I get it. Bad things happen sometimes with like hazing and stuff like that. But like, if I'm going to go to war with a guy, you know, I need to see the inside of his soul. And, there's a lot of, 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 of ancient, not even ancient, but tribal. There's a lot that says you don't really know a man until you fight him. So um, we were a lot like that Spartan Nagogi type of culture, which I loved. And a lot of that just just left once we got into peacetime. Uh, and that's kind of what the old heads said. They said this happens whenever we get into peacetime and things start to slow down. We kind of forget who and what we are. And then it comes back and we get back into the fight. But... For me, I was like, this isn't my Marine Corps anymore. I can't go to war with these guys uh, because, you know, the kind of they just it was just integrated. So I knew I had to get out by the grace of God and a miracle. I ended up getting into executive protection. Really. Um, right time, right place, right relationships. You know, I felt like my guiding light, you know, felt like the Lord told me to go bounce at this local pub and um about three months later a guy basically told me hey if you want to make a lot more money doing what you're doing um come back to me with these two permits and uh you know i'll show you how to make a lot more money doing what you're doing and i ended up that was how i got into executive protection i just heard that voice followed it and boom ran into a guy <laughs> And the doors flew open. But, yeah, that's a long story of why I got out of the Marine Corps, man. I, I felt like it changed. I didn't feel safe there to kind of be myself, be a man, be myself, be the warrior that I, that I was conditioned to be. Well, and I've, I've witnessed that in the fire service, too. And, you know, and there's, there's departments that are doing incredible things. But I, I got to see definitely the two extremes, like some that we had absolute crucibles to go through just to even make it through the door and some that were the polar opposite. And the polar opposite was very much that. There was no test, so everyone could just kind of walk in. So like as no you said, stand. yeah, you and so you were standing alongside people that you'd be proud to fight fire with and you, other people that you know wouldn't even get their fucking mask on no matter go into the building. So, you know, and I and I think that, that um, you know, what you're saying is is it's terrifying in professions where lives are at stake. You want to be a, sh a shitty, you know, 
carpenter and the, the kitchen cabinets fall down after you stick them up, no one's going to die unless there's a small child underneath, you know. But if you're a firefighter, a police officer, a soldier, those standards have to be held high. And I saw there's a direct correlation as well between a high bar being set and that brother and sisterhood being strong. Mm-hmm. 100% because you deserve to be there. You're You're righteous. Like you're in right standing with each other because you've 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 proven that you deserve to be there, and I can count on you. And when that started going out the window, man, it broke my heart. Like I just, oh, it broke my heart. It still bugs me. And so I just was like, I can't do this. It's poisoning me. I need to leave. Uh, so I, so that's why I left. And I, I, you know, Mothers of America and stuff like that. Just kind of, I feel like they ruined it. Sorry. And everyone's suing everybody and. Yeah, it just it just got ugly. Yeah, yeah. Well, you 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 were doing the protection detail. I want to explore what that even looks like in a moment. But it seemed like a pivotal point uh, in the book was when you were sitting at the restaurant in Paris. So tell me about about that and why up to that point you felt unfulfilled. Um, it was very interesting. I uh, I I've. You know, when I'm on the path, like I call it, you know, when I'm making progress equals happiness. So I, you know, I just had my head down and I was surviving. I was going through all these different awesome things, traveling the world. Like I said, first year we hit 60 countries, did that on repeat for multiple years. Um, I find myself in Paris. I'm sitting here close to the Eiffel Tower, ordering lunch with the buddy, with the other guys on the security detail. The other dudes on the security detail are like, you know, I got a Navy SEAL guy, I got a recon guy, I got uh, uh, like a, a Russian power lifter uh, who's like a world renowned power lifter with me. Um, you can look him up, Konstantin Konstantinov. He was like one of my big brothers in the Marine, in the uh, executive protection game. Um, God, you know, rest his soul. So I have these guys with me. <laughs> And we're 1% of the private security industry. We're like an elite private security team at the top of the game. And I remember ordering lunch and I was like, yeah, I don't really drink soda, but I ordered a Coca-Cola with my soda because everyone else did. And the Coca-Cola was like 20 bucks and everyone was like, really? Golly, this is crazy. Um, And this is years ago, so it was really crazy. And uh, I remember being like, what the heck, man? And then I... I had this whole chain of thoughts that was like, this Coca-Cola's 20 bucks is ridiculous. Then I remember thinking like, why are you stressing over 20 bucks? Then I remember thinking like, well, you know, like I make good money, but I still don't want to waste my money. And then I started thinking like, well, look at your environment. You know, you are at this level in the private security industry. You've done a lot of amazing things. And I had this epiphany that like, my physical strength and my physical ability has taken me about as far as it can take me. And I still don't have the power that I'd like with regards to even financially. And I looked at the table and I was like, I'm the most le- less lethal guy here, you know. Um, but I realized we as tough guys, wise men wonder while strong men die. I could die that day on the job. I could Something could happen to me. I could end up in jail and I'd be replaced within you know, 72 hours tops. Another tough guy would take my place. And I started to realize like, I have strength, but strength is just something that's in my body. As a young man, I devoted most all of my youth to generating strength. And 
and, and, it, and served me up until that point. But what I started to realize that for the next phase of life, I needed to start to understand how to acquire power. And this is a much different thing. Strength is just in my body, but power is something different. And uh, I started to ask myself, well, who has power? And I started to think about, well, our client has power. The client who's in the suite that's just sleeping right now in this, you know, ridiculously expensive suite, and he can just, he can have whatever he wants. He can have as many of us tough guys as he wants. He can have as many Coca-Colas as he wants. He's got options. He's got freedom. And um, then this whole kind of paradigm shift happened where I was like, okay, well, my physical strength is taking me as far as it can take me. How do I acquire, acquire power? And then I started to really understand that that's going to be an inside job. That's going to come from strengthening my mind, my heart, my soul, my spirit, um, because all those things are going to be required to bring that type of fruit into my life. And so that's when I started, you know, hammering on the audiobooks, going back to school, studying while I was on the road and getting my, you know, getting, getting my college degrees and things like that. And that epiphany changed my life. And I, I decided that I needed to work as hard as I did on my physical body, needed to now work that hard on my internal state and ability. Brilliant. Now, when I was reading it, I was, cause, cause you could take it one way, like, well, you know, there's the, the, um, the, the power to have, you know, more money, more autonomy. But to me, I almost looked at it like I've seen this in a lot of people that have come on here. It's not so much that one day you won't, won't think twice about spending $20 on a coat because you should. That's completely right. overpriced. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the fact that when you wake up every day, you don't have to go and report to where your employer tells you to go. You can start, you can uh, traverse the road now that you've created for yourself. Whether you're making a lot of money or a small amount of money, you get to dictate where your life goes from there on in. Yes. And that's, that's it, man. Like people, you know, at, when I, for me, it's very clear what I'm fighting for. It's very clear. Like I am doing these things because I can't let the grace that's been given to me in life be in vain. Like I cannot allow me having another chance at life, me having, you know, arms and legs at work, a decent brain. I can't allow these things to be in vain. Uh, you know, and so I have to make a contribution that's worthy of that. So that's one of my driving fat forces. The other one is freedom. I got like, like the freedom is the power, the options to live my life the way I want, love who I want to love, and then to secondarily make those contributions. But that power, like everyone's like, well, how much money do you want? The money represents the power and the power is just the ability to be free and have this and be able to make the decisions you want. That's the whole, for me, that's the whole game. That's what motivates me. That's what drives me. You know, that's what gets me up out of bed. So how how did life change from where you were sitting at that table in Paris to where you are now? What are the big changes that you find in your own life specifically? Um, I just I really took that ethos of how hard I worked on my physical body. I maintain my physical standards, but I took that same drive and ability to be intense and fight in a war, and I turned it inward. You know. I feel like a lot of guys get out of the military and they they lose that intensity because they can't find a place to apply it. And I apply it in finding your new fight, you know. So I, I you have to find a fight, um, something you can apply your warrior ethos and those gears you have. And you know, 
that ability to go harder than a lot of people who haven't experienced the intensities that we've experienced. Um, went back to school, essentially got my associates in business, and then on up to uh, my master's in uh, the science of psychology, and then I'm on into a master's in a bachelor's in the science of psychology, master's in uh, counseling psychology with a minor in forensic psychology. Uh, but even more of my education came from, I think I read up to like, you know, I'm at like 350 audio books. Um, and so that, I, I, I remember reading something um, General Mattis said, it was essentially like, if you are an adult and you haven't read a few hundred books, you're like barely functional. Like, I think he says you're like not even really a functioning, a functional, like you're not even really functional because you only have your little sphere of experiences to draw from. Like, so, you know, I remember watching my perspective expand. I remember watching my inner psychic tools to do life expand. You can't outperform your perspective on life. You cannot outperform your, your 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 paradigm. You know, we want higher quality lives. The only way I know of getting that is to make higher quality decisions. You want to make higher quality decisions, you need higher quality information. You need higher quality, more sophisticated tools. And so I really dug deep into um it was like the matrix. Honestly, it was like the, it was like life turned into the matrix one movie where you realize you can download information into your mind to solve all the problems that you're facing. And if you study people who have solved the problems that you are looking and facing in life, you can make the problem that looked monumental to you. It can just look like nothing because you're, you, you can just look, you'll see it the way that the person you're studying sees it, which that perspective then helps you overcome it. Um, and so I feel like, um, that perspective gave me a completely different, you know, experience. I, and, and then out of that started coming the desire to empower others and the desire to help other people to start to upgrade their perspective. And then came into this kind of perceptual empowerment, um, uh, way of thinking and way of being. Uh, that led me into, you know, doing life coaching and things like that. And, uh, writing that book, finding meaning after the military that we're talking about. And, um, you know, there's just, just the world became so vast and beautiful and amazing. And, um, there's a lot of ways <laughs> that it became better, man. And a lot of problems I was able to solve that got me to where I am today. See, I love hearing that because I was just when you were talking that kind of had a, a an epiphany myself. I kind of beat myself up because I feel like I've been playing catch up the last four or so years. Um, a, I get to interview you know people, so I get to listen to actual authors speak from the heart. You know, the, the tell the story of their project. That I've been reading, you know, reading and audio books and other people's podcasts, but. So it's like, well, why did I wait so late? But then I'm looking back retroactively at our profession of the, the firefighter paramedic. And, you know, our time is taken up learning, you know, um, EKGs, pediatric meds, you know, codes. Then you've got the high angle rope rescue and extrication and structure fires. And it goes on and on and on. So for a lot of the people listening, they probably find this themselves. There is so much for us to learn to stay on top of our game in the profession. And then you add again the shift work, the sleep deprivation, you know, all that stuff, the stress. It it kind of closes down 
that ability to look outside. And, and that's, I think, very important that people are either allowed to able to make space or even better if they retire, if they transition out, whatever they end up doing, you're going to, there's going to be a moment where it's going to be like a punch to the face and, and you're going to, you're going to have that crisis probably. But after that, you're going to realize that there are so many other arenas that you can start exploring and then add the value that you have from your career into that and then grow in a completely different way than you did as a policeman or a firefighter or a dispatcher or whatever you were doing before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. It's, yeah, no, that's that's 100% correct, man. That, that's how I felt, you know, it's like, <clears throat> fortunately for me, my world started opening up before I even got out of the military, but um, I was it was like that moment where uh, Neo's like sitting in the chair and they download a program into his mind and he looks up at the camera and he's like, I know Kung Fu. <laughs> you know, yes. like, that's how my life changed. <laughs> You mean I can just get this audiobook and like listen to it on the way to work and start to like anything I want, like anything I want, I can start learning about it, you know? Um, but yeah, man, I do understand that bandwidth issue too, though, where you're like, man, I got to learn so many uh, profession specific things and, and things are always evolving and changing where it's like you just kind of be have to be immersed for a minute. But yeah, that's good stuff. Yeah, well, I you talk about identity a lot, and I think that's a very powerful thing. So whether it's transitioning out of the military or first responders, um, I see that a lot. You know, in all in all different shapes or forms. I saw it in myself when I when I retired and actually volunteered. I used that term very loosely for about a year, and then realized that that was more to feed my ego because I couldn't let go of the identity of being a fireman, and it was actually really contributing to to that. So, what are you seeing um, as far as that identity piece from wearing the uniform to transitioning to whatever's next? Um, I feel like it can be tough man because you will have a myriad of the most intense and in some ways most valuable experiences of your life in that uniform um you know they say the marine corps is like one year is like the equivalent to four years of civilian life in terms of intensity and experience right um but i i find that it's very easy, and this is really with any transition out of any life, like life endeavor vocation, I feel. Um, even my book has, it's, it's really all about just transitioning, you know, how to transition. Um, we over identify with the uniform, we over identify with the office, we over identify with the, with the title, um, and we can get blinded very easily by it, and we can forget who we really are. We can forget to give ourselves credit for the reality that we created that by the grace of God. We've been the common common denominator in every single situation up until that point. We wore the uniform, but we we are not the uniform. We are not the billet, you know, Um, and that without – now it's difficult because you, you know, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like – you're at the top of that very often when you're in these vocations. You've got all your basic needs met. You got your food, water, shelter. You got your social needs met. You got all these needs being met. You have social status and all these different things, and you're at the top of that pyramid. Once you take that uniform or that vocation away, that pyramid gets flipped all on its head again, and you're just you. And then you have to figure out how to get all these things. You know, maybe you got a retirement, so you got the food, water, shelter piece, but you know, where's your social nourishment and your higher meaning and all these different things are going to come from. So I, I say you need to find your new fight 
Um, but it's just kind of like when I would travel with football NFL players, you know, in the executive protection industry, they would be everything's football, you know. So you kind of got to liken it to, you know, the 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 framework that your mind comes from. You know, football players would be like, yo, I got to find my next game. Yeah, I don't know, but um, you need to find a purpose. And purpose is very interesting. You don't just, man, I'm really passionate about this, and just you just pick something you find your purpose. You don't rate. You don't get to know, in my opinion. You got to work to get to know yourself before you really find what really is going to excite you. So I feel bad for a lot of people. They look at this purpose thing and they're like, oh, I don't know what I don't know where to start. I don't know what I'm passionate about. And then they never start. It's like, no, you have to court these different purposes and you'll find you'll have a present purpose and that present purpose will evolve into hopefully if you stay with whatever your present purpose is and writing it as it changes and evolving and you stay on this path of finding present purpose and fighting in these battles you'll win the war of destiny over the course of your lifetime but it's a journey as you evolve it all evolves right and why do you have to do it you have to do it because you what do you do with anything you don't have a purpose for you know, I find a, I find this, this, you know, I call it a pack of gum on my desk. Well, I just gave it a purpose, but I find this thing on my desk and I'm like, well, what is this? You know, I asked my wife, hey, honey, what's this thing doing sitting here? You know, she's going to be like, I don't know. It doesn't have a purpose. It gets misused. It's abused. It gets eliminated. You know, it's like, oh, well, there's no value in it. I believe this is what happens to a lot of people when they transition out of their vocation and they, they can't find a new purpose and they aren't brave enough or do. Uh, or even diligent enough because it's sometimes it's not a matter of bravery it's just very deceptive it's like well, I don't really know what I like I guess until I find something I really am passionate about I'll just chill out and watch lost episodes right nah dude you need to get proactive about it you need to find it you need to court different ideas and concepts you need to find a reason for staying alive and a reason for contributing and if you don't do that the atrophy of identity you work towards destiny, it's a destination. Fate, however, you know, everything's moving towards entropy. Fate is waiting for you to overcome you if you don't get moving, in my opinion. If it's not growing, it's going, you know. So um, the atrophy of identity starts to set in where you're sitting there, you know, you want to change your state because you don't want to feel like a loser. Maybe you start drinking, smoking, doing some drugs, whatever it is. You're telling war stories. Your, your wife's tired of hearing your war stories. You're, you've been eating and doing all these unhealthy things. You probably don't look anything like you did when you first retired or got out of the service. You almost don't even believe your own stories. Your people are looking at you while you're telling your stories. They don't believe your stories because they're looking at your, your state right now. You know, like, and then you, you find yourself in this living hell and the atrophy of identity, that squad leader you used to be, that war fighter you used to be dies inside you. You look in the mirror, you see the person staring back at you, someone that you wouldn't even have respected back then. You die this, 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 that identity in you dies, the atrophy of identity, I think, is what takes place before a lot of our men and women tap out and uh, do pull the plug on themselves. Um, and that act of pulling the trigger on yourself or tapping out is just an outpicturing of what's already taken place inside um, as you don't find that new fight, that new purpose, and, and step into it the way you step in, stepped into your vocation originally. Yeah. I mean, that's such a great um, perspective. And, and again, I highly recommend people listening to read the book because, you know, I think you, there's so many points that you, the way you, the way you put them, the, your philosophy on them just makes, it, it cuts away all the fluff and it just, it just pulls off the common sense. But the, the identity pace, I think is huge. And, and people signed up 
to make a difference in the world and they gained a skill set whilst doing that but i think that once they transition out of their military unit or fire or police or you know whatever it is they 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 lose that they don't give them the, the themselves the credit that they have that skill set carrying with them and they just need to find a different way of making the world better because that was their mission before so the mission hasn't changed you just got to find you know a different way to do it and i've had navy seals on here that you know started foundations or you know i know firefighters that do mentor programs these are all incredible ways to carry on what you're doing and and not being defined by what ultimately is cloth that's hanging off your shoulders yeah 100 percent 100 percent. i couldn't agree more and that, that like i i just got to a place where I was like, man, I went so hard. I suffered so much, uh, you know, sleeping 45 minutes at a time, you know, you know, like in Iraq and like in training in the Marine Corps. I was like, well, you did that for Uncle Sam. You did that for your boys. You did that for their core. Like, dude, they gave you all the tools. You know how to go hard. Do it for yourself now. Do it for your, 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 your loved ones. Do it for your family. Do it for all the dudes who didn't come back. You know, fight that hard um to be strong and successful out here so you can contribute you know like what better more righteous reason like yeah i'll fight like that for americans but you know i uh also need to fight like that for myself and then what you find is as you fight like that for yourself and you become more you start to realize that as you become more you're able to make higher quality contributions and you're able to serve on higher levels and it's the most gratifying cycle so as you fight for a better version of yourself you are actually fighting for everyone else who's attached to you doesn't even know they're depending on you who doesn't even know you know whose life you can change and impact positively yeah and even that warrior element i mean i find myself i've not like i said i have no background in military no background in law enforcement and i'm from england but there was a point where you know i i purchased a firearm and took classes with you know tim kennedy and some of the those guys and um you know do jujitsu and, and muay thai and all these things not because i'm chasing any medals but because what if what if one day you are the only person that stands between an innocent victim and you know a bully in some shape or form you know so that just that being that member of the community that father that husband you, that in itself should be a mission over and above whatever career path that you choose 100 percent. and you know there's a hundred different ways that can happen nowadays you know with these active human threat scenarios and riots and you can easily find yourself in a situation Absolutely. Well, a great resource coming up. And, you know, one of the reasons why we're putting this out immediately is the Protector Symposium. So tell me about the symposium and tell me the great people that you've got um, teaching. So this Protector Symposium coming up uh, uh, July 11th, 12th for the VIPs, you get the 13th is... Uh, one of the most exciting projects I've ever been able to, 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 I mean, I've been a part of, I, you know, I, I had a dream. I was like, man, I, the world needs more protectors and good people need to be more dangerous. And, um, we really explore that term a lot deeper in, in some of the content, but, you know, being dangerous is just having the capability. Good people need to have the capability to defend themselves and their loved ones. Good people, regardless of background, law enforcement, you know, first responders, private security professionals, civilians. And I just have the dream that if I can increase 
the willing, capable, preparedness of the civilian population, we can decrease, you know, the carnage and the damage done by evil people when they decide to do evil things. So we want to make the world a, a safer place by helping good people be more willing, capable, and prepared, and maybe even more dangerous, right? So um, I had that dream, launched the first one, live event, out here in Irvine, California. 250 protectors show up, regardless of background. We have an amazing time. It's a grand slam. This next year, uh, you know, we've had our low, our boogaloogs our, our, our or, or whatever and uh, pandemics and stuff. So we went with a digital global summit framework so it's online but this has given us the ability to go international you know anybody who's wants to learn more about <clears throat> protecting yourself your family your loved ones your clients you know whether you're on the job or you're at home uh this event is gonna essentially help you take those things to the next level i can't make you a black belt inside of three days but i can definitely to expose you to professionals who will help you take your professional your your protection game to the next level so we've got yosef badu who's returning he teaches um threat profiling and human behavioral profiling so he's taught that to you know every government agency you can imagine top military organizations this is how you recognize actually actual dangerous behavior and dangerous people okay so you're not looking at some kid and thinking he's a gangster or he's he's dangerous to you uh, and you miss the actual person who's about to open fire in the environment. So this is really how you learn who's who in the zoo. Yosef is top of the line when it comes to that. He's top of the game. Um, we have Jared Reston, SWAT officer. Uh, he was involved in an officer-involved shooting uh, a few years back. Um, he's still active. Uh, in his shooting, he was shot seven times. Uh, one of which he got struck in the face uh, with a 45 caliber handgun. He fought through it, defeated his adversary, and he's going to be talking uh, about what it takes to survive an armed encounter uh, with the enemy. Uh, I heard part of his message one time, and I was like, I need to create a podium. I need to create uh, a stage because this information should be heard by every first responder in the world, in my opinion. Like I, like he was part of the reason I created the event. <laughs> you know, um, just because I was like, man, everyone needs this. So uh, Jared Reston's going to be there. Uh, we've got Tony Blowers, who's going to be teaching. He's been teaching for decades on, um, man, he's like the mad scientist of personal protection. He's like Albert Einstein of personal protection. You know, he's got... He's got the psychology down of it. He understands the way your body reacts in fear. He's been teaching law enforcement agencies for decades. He's created his own personal defense discipline called the spear technique. Um, he He's one of those guys that has layers of experience on top of intellect, and he can put things to you in ways that kind of you just would never even imagine. Uh, so it's an honor to have him. He's a legend in the space as well. Uh, we've got uh we've got ed calderon so we got a total of seven speakers right so ed calderon is going to be giving a course on uh urban movement and disruption ed's background is uh he worked in mexico against the cartels uh with regards to human trafficking narcotics and he did personal security details for officials down there um he's got a whole different brand of uh, uh his brand is just like 
Well, right now we're seeing some of the most sophisticated adversarial tactics come out of Mexico than anywhere else in the world. It's one of the most dangerous places on the planet. So, um, you know, it's it's a whole other brand of things uh, coming out of there. So it, where it's an honor to have Ed. He's been on the Joe Rogan podcast twice, if you want to look him up. He's amazing. Um, next up, we have Craig Douglas, who teaches ShivWorks. His call sign is South Narc. He was a narcotics officer. And he teaches what I believe is the Formula One of personal protection what to do when you're five feet and in, when your enemy is on top of you, when your enemy, when you guys are literally grappling and fighting, how can you implement a gun? Uh, how can you implement a knife? He's going to be teaching uh, interdisciplinary, uh, uh, interdisciplinary, um, uh, basically intertwining multiple different um, martial arts to be able to utilize a weapon uh, in close quarters environment. He has a whole course on like fighting in the backseat. You go to his course, you put the pads on, you guys fight each other. It's pretty awesome. Um, and then we've got uh, uh, Mike Pannone. Mike Pannone, you can Google him, one-eyed Delta guy. Um, Marine Corps reconnaissance, um, Army Green Beret, Delta Force, uh, uh, Air Marshal program plank holder and then he was one of the first contractors overseas for triple canopy who stood up one of their programs so he stood up programs for air marshals and for triple canopy guys legit as they come uh he's got one eye he'll go to a shooting competition smoke all of us and like he's older than all of us he's just a lifelong warrior and he's talking all about how to protect yourself and your family and strategies around those things um and then myself i'll be talking about uh um uh, modern day protection dynamics, you know, the psychology of protection, how you if you were today a civilian or just a normal or just maybe you're in law enforcement or maybe you're a first responder, or just, you know, how can I protect myself and my family, you know, coming from someone who all I've done since I was 21 is is uh, personal protection for high net worth individuals. And uh, like I said, all over the world. So. It sounds yeah, extremely exciting. It really, really does. Then where, where do people find that? Where do they go? You can find out all that info and get your tickets uh, at protectorsymposium.com. Protectorsymposium.com. Yeah. Or my, my main website, byronrogersmotivation.com. Brilliant. Yeah, I've had Tony on. He's going to actually come back on the show. And then Ed is is coming in three weeks, I think it is. Um, Outstanding. So, yeah. So, I have to work through your guest list. I normally ask if there are any guests to recommend, but you've already given several names that I've looked up after seeing them at the symposium and, um, yeah, yeah, some incredible people. Um, Outstanding. Brilliant. Well, just shifting slightly, I want to start heading towards some of the closing questions so we can let you go. But I saw you do a video um, with 511. That's one of the uh, the sponsors of the podcast. I love their stuff. You know, there's people like Tim Kennedy and other guests that are also aligned with them. How did you find them and, and what is your, uh, you know, experience with that company? 511 is, you know, I've really, really come to love them uh, over the last few years. Um, I've been able to do some things with them by the grace of God, which has been really, really quite an honor because I grew up, you know, you know, you know, in these cultures where we're at, like 511 is like the, you know, number one tactical clothing provider, right? Um, but when I got into executive protection, we can't walk around and look like operators. Like contrary to, you know, popular beliefs, we have to look very much like civilians. Um, and so I couldn't really rock 511 stuff for a minute, you know. 
Um, in fact, the VIP guests at our at our at the event are going to get like hooked up with a sweet 511 bag and stuff like that. Um, but we couldn't really rock. I couldn't look like an operator. I couldn't look like a contractor. I needed to look like a civilian. And over the last few years, they have been dropping uh, articles of clothing to where I can do all my shopping at 511. Like I can buy my range gear for when I'm going to go shoot in a shooting competition or just have a range day with the boys or I have a client that's got a, you know, a, a ranch that I got to go to or or we're going to do some hard stuff or my civilian day to day rolling through L.A., Hollywood or wherever I'm going with my clients, I can still get all my clothes at 511. So I've been putting together kind of like my personal executive protection centric pick like wardrobes um and now they've made me a dealer uh putting together a wardrobe of what i what i love about the low profile uh components within you know their arsenal so that's right now what i've been really excited about through 511 for the last probably about year and a half two years see that's so good to hear because i i went over there and um they were kind enough to to give me some things when we were at the store i went and actually visited the uh the headquarters was very very excited to see that the door handle was a halligan which is the firefighter yeah. tool um awesome. but the jeans and the shorts i I am not blowing smoke up anyone out anyone's ass listening i used to get them all my clothes from old navy i was very kind of you know plain um dresser but you know they're they're just their jeans, you know, whereas the 511 ones, it kind of reminds me uh, of the old Chuck Norris Kung Fu jeans that they used to have in the martial arts uh, um, magazines. But yet you can you can move around and the shorts are super, super comfortable. But like you were saying, you can still have, you know, they're sturdy enough to be able to carry underneath, but you don't look like you're you know, tactical Randy walking around <laughs> either. So, so yeah, I mean, I think that I, I've seen it myself. I can testify myself. They have so many things for people now outside of looking like you're about to deploy to the Middle East. Right. No, they're just heavier duty, smarter clothes. Like they're the only jeans I'll wear because they stretch and I got thighs, you know, so like, like they will, the jeans stretch, the jeans are comfortable, but I also have pocket. I want to forget. I think it's like pockets number six and seven where if I want to drop an AR mag in my, in my pocket and have it not disturb my wallet in the condition, conventional back pocket, I can, you know, so like, I want to drop some cuffs in that other back pocket, you know, without it disturbing, without anyone being able to notice. I got extra mags in these, you know, back pockets. It's you keep the heavy duty aspect and you don't sacrifice like style and comfort. Exactly. All right. Well, then transition to some closing questions. Um, we talked about your book is finding meaning after the military. Now is, that's available on Amazon. I know because I just looked um, on Kindle and and the regular um, editions as well. Do you have an audio book for that? I don't yet. I need to. I'm gonna get that done. I'm gonna get that done by the end of the year. I I, I, I have to because I'm an audio book guy, and it's so hypocritical for me not to have my own audio book. It's got to be done. <laughs> All right. Um, so then the first question I'd love to ask, is there a book that someone else has written that you love? It can be something to do with what we've discussed today or something completely different. Um, two books, 48 Laws of Power. Uh, anything Robert Greene, in my opinion, will uh, – eh, I, I wasn't too impressed with the laws, uh, Art of Seduction or Laws of Seduction. But 48 Laws of Power is a book that helped me um, tremendously uh, – in my industry, but I think it will help anyone. It's one of the number one books read in prison because it helps you so much with social dynamics. 
uh, and social dynamics turn out to be some of the most powerful and important things you can master in life. Um, uh, it's, it's everything that comes in and out of your life, positive or negative, will probably come through a relationship. So just think about that for a second. Um, so social dynamics is something I talk about at my executive protection school. It's huge. Uh, the other thing, the other book I would say is, um, as a man thinketh by James Allen. It's a very quick book. It was written like, it's like old, it's like from the forties or twenties or something like it's old, but it's such timeless wisdom. It's the first audio book I ever listened to. And it's, it started the whole journey of opening up my mind and helping me realize how I can deliberately create the reality I am currently living. Um, and it's like a 45 minute audiobook, and I listen to it like every month for a, a few years and I'm probably going to go back and listen to it now again, just cause it's that powerful. Brilliant. Well, I haven't had either of those two recommended yet and they're both great reasons behind them. So thank you for that. Um, all right. Next question. Is there a movie that you love or movies? <laughs> man, I'm a hopeless romantic man who loves combat movies, man. I love me some war. I love the romance of it. Uh, you know, uh, I look at combat movies like chick flick, dude, chick flicks kind of though. Um, I recently watched heat again. Oh, oh. It's so good. It's so good. I've been listening to the soundtrack as I drive around <laughs> just because I just love it so much. Um, I love The Last Samurai. I love, uh, let's see, you know, um, I love these equalizers that have been coming out. You know, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of like a movie horror. I don't have any. I'm not like very monogamous at all. I love all of the uh, Keanu Reeves like um, – uh john wick series i love the matrix i like morpheus is one of my alter egos um you know and and training day is one of my favorite movies uh as well you know i love lonzo he was one of my alter egos in the marine corps <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah man that's kind of my orientation to movies excellent i think denzel washington would be an amazing person to interview he's he's got such a a, a, an interesting backstory for a start but I mean as an actor it was kind of funny that he won the Oscar for Training Day because if you watched him in The Hurricane or Cry Freedom some yeah. of these incredibly powerful performances he did I think Training Day was great but it wasn't even close to as good as some of his prior movies yeah and had half the depth you know what I mean and I ironically we were in South Africa when he was recording Safe House and I remember looking at my detail and I was like look guys if we run into Denzel and his detail I'm sorry. Like, count me out. I'm going to do everything. I You're going to fangirl. I will sell out. I will fangirl. <laughs> Not really, but you know what I, mean? like, I was like, I'm getting on that detail, guys. Sorry. Oh, man. I, uh, yeah, man. It was, it was, it was, but I, we never saw those guys. But, um, yeah, man. Yeah, he's, he's amazing. We'll see one day. Morgan Freeman as well. I, I don't know if you heard, going back to our conversation earlier, there was an interview he was in where he was talking about a solution of racism is to stop yeah. defining race and i'm like it's so painfully simple and it's so true and then as a as a white professor an older lady who talks about the origin of race and and I, I don't know i haven't done the research but she is a professor she talks about that it came from the spanish inquisition that they used it to 
to see who was different religions. And then that basically expanded out to dividing humans into skin color. Wow. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's just, it's just not, um, a move that's going to bring certain people power. So it's just not like going to be popular for a while, <laughs> for a while. Right. Like, and I, I love, he's just like, stop talking about it. Like I've, and I've done the same thing with Morgan Freeman. He's like, just stop talking about it. And then the interviewer's like, uh, and I, I've done the same thing. I've spent most all my life trying to like make it so that people just see Byron, you know, and now I'm finding that I'm back in a position where when I meet some white folks, I got to spend the first five or 10 minutes, you know, like wading through their dance of, Hey, we're not racist. (laughs) One of my best friends is black. (laughs) One of my best friends is black. My cousin. Yeah. My, my uncle's daughter, you know, is with a black guy. And then, I have to do the whole like, hey, I'm not angry, you know, like I'm not mad at you. Like and, and it just it's so tragic that we have to not prejudge each other, but we kind of have to just in case, you know, do this dance, you know. Yeah, the CYA dance. <laughs> yeah, man. All right. Well then documentaries. Are there any of those that you've seen that really resonated with you? You know, I really love documentaries and I but I haven't watched any recently other than like these food ones have been getting me but they're not even the ones that i'm really passionate about like oh i love watching documentaries on history and like crazy things that are going on now that you don't really know about but like i keep um i remember forks over knives traumatized me for a little while i like and then uh this most recent one game changers was really good i was getting a tattoo and i watched it and uh uh I was supposed to have the gentleman that did most of the research for that on my, on my podcast. Um, but we just, things were really busy at the time, but, uh, game changers was the most recent one that sticks out to me as something worth looking into. Brilliant. Well, I had Joel Salatin on, who was the, the farmer in Forks Over Knives. You can have the dungarees and the floppy yeah. hat. He's actually coming yeah. back on. I just, just contacted him the other day. And then James that was- Wilkes that wrote, that made the game changers. He was on. Yes. On a little while ago too. So, and then that is a perfect example of what we were talking earlier about finding where you agree. There's so much, you know, like, uh, extremism when it comes in to diet, you know, carnivores and vegans. And, and I listened to these interviews. And when I talked to James, we just talked about the bit where most people agree. Should we cover our food in chemicals? Should we have our animals, but so, you know, sick that they're fed antibiotics till they're slaughtered. You know what I mean? Just the common, common ground. If you want to be a vegan, awesome. Be a vegan. If you want to throw some meat in there or go with fish, whatever it is, but don't shame someone because they just eat vegetables. That makes no sense. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Absolutely. 100% I'm the same way, man. All right. So the very last question, because like I said, the the guest list that you have going to your symposium, I will definitely be hitting you up to try and contact some of those incredible people. Um, what do you do to decompress? Um, so I, you know, I have a pretty, I'm all about self-care because uh, I can't perform at the level that I, you just can't, like, you're just not going to be in the game long. This is, I, it kills me when I hear people, I'm like, what is, you know, what's your regimen? How do you take care of yourself? So I used to have these reset days. I'd probably execute on them once a quarter or like, depend on how hard I'm going whenever I need to, where I would like 
go to a UV sauna. I would go to like in a one day, I'd go to like a chiropractor UV sauna. I'd be getting my like juices in and stuff like that, high nutrients. And then I would go to uh, uh, a sensory deprivation chamber um, and just get completely rested. Um, and I'd call them my reset days and it was just awesome. Or I'd go to a spa or something like that. Um, but since I have put a UV sauna inside my, my house, it was only like 1500 bucks, uh, for like a two person UV sauna. So like now I have one of those in my house. So, you know, I wake up earlier than everyone and I, um, you know, I wake up at 4am and I get a good workout in release all that positive, all those positive endorphins teach myself that I can strengthen myself physically, mentally, spiritually. Um, I believe all that happens when I'm working out and the way I'm thinking. Um, I keep myself on a steady diet of empowering information. I have on my YouTube channel, I have a playlist called Moto Vids. I've been putting this playlist together for like last seven years. It's like 600, I think it's like 666 videos. <laughs> six, six, right. six. <laughs> yeah, I know. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I saw that yesterday. I was like, I gotta, I gotta put another video on here. So, <laughs> but anyway, why would it let me at it? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. YouTube's the devil. So, um, but it's like 600 and some odd videos of these extremely successful people speaking about extremely powerful success principles, and it's got cool soundtracks. It's motivating enough, at least for me to for me to work out too. So, I'm feeding my mind. I'm feeding. I'm strengthening my body, and I leave. Uh, my at-home gym now, uh, feeling strong like I can conquer the world. And I hop in my sauna for, you know, 20, 30 minutes. And, um, man, that keeps me pretty stinking healthy. Uh, and, and, and I believe that I wouldn't be able to see the world and move through the world the way I do without constantly feeding my paradigm and feeding my beliefs. Um, these high quality thoughts, high quality concepts that come from these people that have solved problems that I can only hope someday to, to, to even have an opportunity at solving. So that's kind of on my regimen. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. It's, it's funny how, like, when we were young, it was all about, you know, no pain, no gain. And as you get older, it's not even the aging element. I think the whole wellness arena has realized that the recovery piece is so important for you to function at a high level. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Well, for people listening, just to, to make sure they know where they can find you, what's the best place online for all of your work and where can they find you on social media? Yeah. Uh, Byron Rogers Motivation is my uh, main website where you can learn everything about me and find everything I'm doing. I'm always doing multiple things. You know, I have an executive protection school for people trying to get into executive protection when, as they transition. Uh, Protector Nation, I've got the symposiums that are coming up. Um, you can also learn about me. I'm pretty active on Instagram first. Um, I have one of the biggest private security groups in the game called the executive protection lifestyle group, um, which I also have a podcast after that. Um, but, uh, I also have, uh, I have a presence on Facebook and Instagram, but you'll find me and on YouTube. I've got a YouTube channel where you'll find a lot of my more long form videos and episodes, podcast episodes that I, I record them so you can view them there as well. So, uh, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube are my primaries. Most things come through Instagram first. So Byron underscore Rogers, um, is my primary Instagram account. Brilliant. I 
And you got to make sure everyone puts a D in the, the word Rogers, otherwise you end up Skyping an old dude by mistake. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> All right, well, Byron, I just want to say thank you. We went way over time and there's still so many things. I mean, I haven't even touched on, you know, the lessons learned from executive protection, how we can apply them to the civilian life, but that'll have to be for another podcast. But I, uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I'm so glad that, that Matt connected us and, and I'm looking forward to seeing the uh, symposium. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Hey, it, it's an honor. It was a fantastic conversation. You know, I, um, I, it's an, it's, it's, like I said, it's an honor to be able to share and it's an honor to be able to contribute. And, uh, sorry if I just talked too long <laughs> to answer some of those questions long, but thank you for, um, sharing your platform with me, James. I really appreciate it.